the Siege of New Hampshire series by Mick Rowland. Book Four, Susan's Bridge. Chapter 21, Diverted. The eyes of Heather, Blake, and Aaron were on Susan. She cast a quick glance at the bridge's sidewalk, the open path to the other side, New Hampshire. The situation wasn't ideal. One of the soldiers had noticed them inching toward the railing. Better now, she thought, with only one. Ready, set, Susan whispered out of the sides of her half-smiling mouth. The soldier put both hands on his rifle. Hey, 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 shouted a man in a brown canvas coat. He dropped his box and strode quickly toward Susan, with his arms out wide. Don't get all antsy. I'll be just a little longer, he said loudly. He walked between the soldier and Susan's group. What the hell are you doing? The man muttered as he got close to Susan. What the hell are you doing? Susan snapped back under her breath. Keeping you from getting killed, that's what, the man said in a hoarse whisper. For the benefit of the soldiers, who had all, by this point, taken notice of Susan's group, he said loudly, Ah, that was the last box. We can go up to the co-op in a couple of minutes. Just give me a few more minutes. He walked back to the toboggan, explaining to the soldiers how his family was getting impatient waiting for him. What do we do now? Heather whispered. Stand really still. Susan spoke through his stage smile. All six soldiers stood in the restaurant parking lot, rifle butts at their shoulders. Susan knew that there was no way to outrun them any more. The six were dressed in black fatigues, Federal soldiers. They were a mix of sizes and ages. One was barely twenty. Others were a mixture of tall and short. The oldest had a double chin and a pot belly. Okay, all done now, the man in the brown coat said loudly. Let's all go up to the co-op. He took the sled rope from Susan's hand and ushered them with a sweeping arm movement to move up the street. He waved cheerfully to the soldiers. See you next week. A visibly subdued but nonetheless heated exchange flew between Susan and the man in brown. What the hell were you thinking? Why did you do that? We could have made it. You have no idea. That was the most reckless. You ruined everything. Will you two be quiet? interrupted Heather. Two of those soldiers are following us. The man in the brown coat looked back. The barely twenty-something and the portly soldier followed about fifteen yards behind him. The man in brown waved to the soldiers. They didn't wave back. I told them you were waiting for me to go up to the co-op. Looks like we'll have to do it now, he said. We could have made it, Susan grumbled between clenched teeth. Oh, no, you couldn't, the man grumbled back. Much louder, he said. Ah, the line is moving pretty well. We should not have to wait long now. He pulled the sled up to the line. The soldiers waited beside a lamppost on the other side of the street. Those aren't regular soldiers the man said. His back was to the soldiers as he pretended to fuss with the sled's tarp lashings. They're new feds. I could see that, Susan said, with a fake face scratch. That's why I figured they wouldn't shoot. 
totally wrong, said the man in brown. NORCOM issued orders. No one is to be allowed through any crossing into or out of New Hampshire. Apparently, there was a big security breach down in Mass. Yeah, heard of it, Susan quipped. Well, because of it, NORCOM set a reward. An extra month's rations to the first man who brings them some dead bodies. They would have shot you for a ham sandwich. Oh, dear, gasped Heather. Damn right, oh dear, continued the man. That fat one there, he's been bragging about how he's going to win that bounty. Fifty-one years old, former IRS data analyst, was about to be assigned to a restoration center for being pretty much useless. Yeah, well, those aren't his words, of course, but that's the gist of what he told me. He joined the call for the new Fed troops last month. He's still pretty much useless, and on the brink of getting cashiered out. So he's been itching to claim that bounty and keep his job. I guess I should say thank you then, said Susan, but I'm still really angry. We were trying to get to New Hampshire to find a home, Heather inserted. Why go there? the man asked. Find some place here. Is New Hampshire worth dying for? Susan glared at the man. It was an unfair, complex question. Oh, look, you got some canned goods here. That's good. They really like those. Let's get you inside, processed, and get your voucher. We can go out the back and maybe lose those two, especially Itchy. I don't trust him one bit. Inside the co-op building, the air was stale with breath and body odor. Everything seemed to be dim and gray, lit only from the dirty windows facing the parking lot. The floor was slushy from tracked-in snow so it wasn't difficult to scoot the sled along. A little man with a gray ponytail sat at a table inside the inner doors. He assessed Susan's group eight cans since they didn't have a retainer's ID card that listed their assessment. On the wall behind his table were banners with slogans like Sharing is Caring and For the Good of All. They followed the line of other retainers. The former grocery store still had all of its long rows of shelves. Most of them were empty. Small groups of cans, bags, and boxes were bunched up at the ends near the doors. Susan set eight cans, mostly the vegetable cans, on the end of one of the dead cashier stations. A sour-looking woman scribbled on a clipboard and handed Susan a piece of paper, her voucher to prove that she had made her weekly contribution to the canton. The man in brown turned in a receipt for the food he had delivered to the soldiers. He received a voucher, too. Back doors this way. The man pointed down a long, empty aisle to a windowless door. There was no slush that far into the store. I'll help you carry a sled. Okay, I guess I can say thanks for helping us not get shot, Susan said grudgingly. But we're still stuck with the same problem as before. Despite her anger, she sensed that the man in brown could be trusted with some information. He had honest eyes, hands that looked like they did hard work, and he wore a wedding band. He had them wait up against the back wall of the store while he called over a young man minding his horse. Lead her back around and up the street, he told the young man. I'll meet you by that yellow house. We can settle up there. He pointed at the back of the house farther up the street. 
The young man nodded and shuffled back to the horse and sled. Susan gave the man in brown a nutshell version of the backstory of Heather's family. He didn't ask why Susan happened to be passing by the cabin, and she didn't offer to fill in those blanks. I don't know what your plans were, but at least I can give you a ride a few blocks away from Itchy. What you do after that is up to you. Susan and Heather consulted in low whispers. They couldn't stay where they were. Susan had no alternate plans at the moment. Getting some distance between them and the soldiers would give them some time to think. They agreed. Great, said the man in brown. My name's Nathan, by the way. Nathan Ames. He had a firm handshake. Over there is Daphne. He pointed to a tan horse with wide shoulders, wide hips, and hair on her lower legs. She was harnessed to a flatbed sled with several vertical stakes along the sides. The sled had a raised seat in front. We'll meet her up on the street. He led the way between tall houses. The young man led Daphne up the street. Nathan paid the young man with a plastic quart bottle of milk, which the young man quickly concealed under his coat. The exchange looked like an illicit drug deal. Climb on the sled wherever you like. Hang on to one of the stakes, though. The streets can be a little uneven. I'll take you all up to the bridge. How does that sound? Heather and Susan looked at each other with cautious concern. They could hop off the sled at any time, so it seemed low risk. Getting some distance from the soldiers seemed prudent. The streets were surprisingly bumpy for packed snow. The wide skis of the farm sled tended to slide sideways at times. All four of the group held on tightly to a vertical stake when the sled fishtailed. Well, here we go, announced Nathan. He pulled Daphne up to a stop. Elm Street Bridge. I'm going farther west from here. Not trying to pry, but just in case I could help you out some more, uh, what do you folks plan to do from here? Housing, I guess, said Susan. She needed more time to develop a new plan. Though we're a bit skittish about housing arrangements, she told the man about Kirk and their narrow escape. Hmm, the man stroked his chin. Guess that casts a bit of a dark cloud over what I was about to suggest. What was that? Heather asked brightly. Well, I was going to offer you folks a room at my place. Now, now, before you get all refusy, hear me out. I hear you've been through a lot, so of course you're feeling really cautious, as well you should be. I have no ulterior motives. He stopped and frowned at the ground. Of course, if I was the sort who did have ulterior motives, that's probably just what I'd say. Yeah, dang. Well, anyhow, You'll feel better if you can keep your firearms with you. Yeah, they're not all that hidden if you know what to look for. But that's okay. Nowadays, you got to be prepared for trouble. How far away is this place of yours? Susan asked. Five corners? Oh, it's a few miles west of town here. Totally up to you. I'm just offering before I head back. Sled's going, full or empty. The four of them huddled to whisper. Susan and Heather agreed that Nathan didn't set off any alarms for them. The kids seemed to be echoing whatever their mother felt. They needed some place to stay, even if it was just for a few nights while Susan figured out her next move. Wonderful, Nathan said with a wide smile. Pile on. Would you like to ride up here? 
Nathan asked Heather. Easier to hold on. Got handles on the seat. Heather smiled. You two hold on to one of those board things, she admonished her kids. She climbed up and took a seat at the opposite end of the wooden bench. When everyone signaled that they were braced and ready, he flicked the reins. Daphne leaned into her collar, and they were off. Susan sat with her legs hanging over the back of the wooden deck. Her junk sled trailed along at the end of a rope. She watched the wooden houses glide by. Over their roofs, the mountain continued to mark the spot she almost made it to. Blake leaned out, facing up the road like a dog out of a car window. Aaron sat beside Susan. I haven't seen Mom smile in a long time, Aaron said. She pointed with her eyes, since both hands held on to a wooden stake. Heather was smiling as she talked, daring to gesture with one hand. The other hand held the iron loop tightly. She looked like a cheerleader again. Nathan seemed equally as deep in their conversation. The jing-jink-jing of Daphne's harness drowned out whatever it was they were talking about. Heather looked relaxed and happy. Susan worried that Heather might be too trusting. She would have to have a word with her later. Susan kept an eye on her mountain as they passed through a cluster of houses. It was still there, and only a little smaller. Sometimes a taller house or a thick clump of trees obscured the mountain. Susan would shift left or right, peering to catch it come back into view. As the road curved northward, the mountain disappeared behind a line of houses, hills, and trees. Susan peered and waited. She sat up taller and peered. The mountain didn't come back into view. It was gone. Susan could feel herself deflate. She stared at the little sled, hopping and skittering behind them. It reminded her of other times. It seemed like another lifetime. What's wrong? Aaron asked. No, nothing. Susan kept her eyes on the little sled. Yeah, right. You look like your dog died, Aaron said. Susan glanced at her. She wasn't in the mood for teen candor. I don't have a dog. It was the mountain, wasn't it? Aaron said. I watched you watching it. Now it's gone. It was just a mountain, Susan said. She didn't want to admit that she did feel like her dog died. Nathan pulled on the reins. Daphne plodded to a stop in front of a little white house. It looked like one of those old colonials out on Cape Cod. Low and small, with narrow windows, but a massive chimney. Behind it grew a series of connected additions, each larger than the last, culminating in a tall white barn. You can hop off now, said Nathan. I'll go in and tell Dad. He bounded through the narrow front door. Susan, Heather, and the kids stood in a line beside the sled. A wiry man with silver hair and what looked like a permanent scowl followed Nathan out of the door. Nathan performed a sort of pantomime introduction as if presenting Susan's group as a game show prize that the father had won. Nathan's father took a step forward and turned, facing Nathan but his back to Susan. He spoke in staccato growling tones. Individual words couldn't be heard. 
From the arm gestures, it was clear that he was not happy. Nathan flailed his arms, too, gesturing compassion, pleading, and surrender to the inevitable. This doesn't look good, Susan said quietly. I don't think we're as welcome as Nathan thought, Heather replied. The older man turned suddenly and stared hard at Heather. He spun back to Nathan with renewed venom and fierce finger-pointing. Nathan counted on his fingers. He pointed to the little red house up the hill. The older man's gestures lost much of their vigor. He turned to look at Aaron and Blake. They both smiled wide, somehow sensing that they were puppies in an animal rescue pen. The older man turned back, shaking his head. He walked slowly back into the house. Come on in by the fire, Nathan swept his arm toward the door. Are you sure? Heather asked. Your father didn't look happy to see us. Well, I'll admit thee raises some valid concerns, but still, something must be done, eh? Come on, come on, might as well be warm while we're sorting it out. Inside, the ceiling was low and the room small. The furniture filled the room. Barely a path remained between the door and the fireplace. Every patch of wall displayed framed photos, plaques, or decorations. Orange licks of flame danced behind caramel-stained glass in the wood stove. Nathan ushered his four guests up to the stove. They shed their coats and gloves into a sagging sofa covered with a green blanket. Aaron and Blake sat down immediately. I sent Micah to fetch your Uncle Rupert and your brother Tucker, said the older man. He had slumped into a glider rocker near the stove. They need to be in on your problem. Everyone, said Nathan, this is my father, Elijah. Dad, this is Susan, Aaron, Blake, and this is Heather. The last introduction got an extra arm wave. Elijah looked at each of them with a sad resignation. The four waited in awkward silence for several long minutes. The radiation from the stove was a welcome compensation. The front door burst open, sending a swirl of cold air through the room. "'What's that crazy Nate done now?' boomed a big voice. A large man with a broad face and a close-cropped silver beard strode into the room. Sawdust fell off of his gray coveralls with each thunderous stride. "'Now don't be going off half-cocked,' cautioned a woman's voice behind him. "'You haven't heard anything yet.' A small woman with salt-and-pepper hair and a flowered hat peered around the sawdust man. "'Tucker is still milking,' she said. "'I said I'd come and see what's up.' "'Mike says you brought home some strays,' said the big man, inches from Nathan's face. Uh, "'Uncle Rupert, uh, Sandy?' Nathan backed up a half a step and went through the introductions again. Rupert was Elijah's brother. Sandy was Nathan's sister-in-law. "'Why the hell did you bring him here?' demanded Rupert. "'I couldn't just leave him in town,' said Nathan. "'Why not? Lots of folks stay in town and live off the teeth. It's not like we got tons of extra to feed every stray you come across.' Nathan told a condensed version of Heather's backstory. He included the part about Kirk, with some exaggerations. Sandy gasped. Rupert furrowed his big face in disapproval of Kirk. 
Nathan explained his plan to let Heather and her kids stay at his little red house up the hill. He had an empty bedroom and food laid up for three. They could make it work. What does your wife say? Susan asked Nathan. She glanced at his gold band. The room fell silent. Elijah, Rupert, and Sandy looked at each other to see who would answer the question. Nathan hung his head and slowly spun the ring on his finger. She died a while back, said Sandy, and his son, Josiah, too. The Baltimore riot fires, back in November. That's why he has an empty room. Rupert looked Nathan firmly in the eyes. You'd better not have no hanky-panky in mind, Nate. Huh? No way. Nathan held his hands up and shook his head in denial. "'Cause if I hear of any attempted hanky-panky, I'm gonna break both of your legs. You got that?' Rupert pointed with his big finger as if it were a spear. "'And you can't hank or pank with broken legs.' Uh, "'Got it, uh, Uncle Rupert. Uh, never occurred to me. I'm just trying to give them a safe place to stay. Uh, that's all.' Nathan nodded enthusiastically, as if his own agreement bolstered his testimony. Rupert faced Heather, with his fierce face still on. If he makes so much as a single move that you don't like anything at all, you just tell me. I'll break both of his legs. Um, thanks. I'm sure there won't be any trouble. Heather held a worried smile. What about her? Rupert stabbed a finger sideways toward Susan. You ain't got room for her up there, too. The three of them will fill Josie's room. Oh, well, I was kind of thinking that uh, you might... Uh, Nathan's voice trailed off as Rupert squinted at him and growled. You know darn well we ain't got no room. Not with all four of your cousins back in the house and their kids. Nathan turned a cheesy grin toward Sandy. Sandy frowned at him. Our place? Where do you figure to put her? In the barn? We filled our last spare room with Ed and Flo after their house burned down. Paul ain't given up his room, and, and Tucker sure as heck ain't going to let Paul move in with us. We got no rooms. Susan felt awkward listening to her fate being argued. She was an unwelcome addition, a refugee. The freedom of the woods felt especially appealing. She would be a burden on no one. Uh, what about the upper room in the middle house? Nathan offered cautiously. What? It's tiny. There ain't nothing up there but bare floor and, and some old boxes. Well, I don't need any furniture or anything, said Susan. I, I'm okay on a floor. Well, uh, we don't got no extra food to go doling out. Well, I'll provide my own. And, and I don't plan to be here long. If you'll let me harvest some pine bark. What? Tree bark? You see, interjected Nathan, a place for everybody. It works. Sandy and Tucker's farmhouse stood close to one of the five roads that came together in front of Elijah's house. The Tucker's farm, middle house, was a glorified causeway, built like a small house. It connected the main farmhouse to the old barn. The main room of the middle house functioned as a large mudroom and a workroom for projects too big for the kitchen. 
Vertical boards boxed out a sort of corner closet near the heavy wooden door that led to the barn. A skinny closet door revealed very steep steps that switched back, climbing through a hole in the pine board ceiling. Susan pushed a few dusty cardboard boxes to one end of the cramped attic space. She could only stand upright in the center. An eyebrow dormer let in a welcome beam of sun. She rolled out her sleeping bag and hung her extra clothes on nails. It was a Spartan arrangement, but a considerable upgrade from sleeping in the snow. A couple of days of peace and quiet would help her sort out a new plan. Peace and quiet were rare commodities. She sat on her sleeping bag and stared out the little window. Her body enjoyed the break from always being on the move. Her mind couldn't stop and rest. So much had happened, so much walking, and yet she was no closer to her goal. Dinner, Sandy called up the stairwell. What? Uh, but I don't want to be eating your... Won't do to starve you on your first night. If you want some, it's on the table. Susan hurried down the steep steps. Any meal was a treasure. An ornate white oil lamp stood in the middle of the kitchen table. It cast a yellow glow that clashed with the blue window light from the fading day. The bowl of oatmeal cast both blue and orange shadows across the table. A plate of soft cheese and jerky strips and a decanter of water sat beside the bowl. Sandy introduced Susan to her neighbor guests, Ed and Flo. The old couple smiled, somewhat vacuously. Susan felt certain her responses were equally vacuous. She had met too many people in the last few weeks to keep them all straight in her mind. Sandy introduced her brother, pointing to an empty chair. Tucker drummed his fingers on the bare wooden table. He gave Sandy an impatient look. Well, he's coming, Sandy assured him. I heard the barn door latch. Sandy's brother floated into the room silently. Paul looked to be in his late thirties to early forties, wearing dark gray coveralls. He pulled off his gloves and ear-flap hat and took a seat. Never once did he look up. Tucker thanked the Lord for how he continued to provide for their daily bread and asked for his help to appreciate their blessings and not to pine over the foods of Egypt. There was very little conversation over the meal. Tucker spoke a little about his goats. Flo spoke of a vacation in Montreal, but got distracted with her oatmeal and didn't finish her story. No one asked Susan where she came from or where she was going. That suited her fine. Ideally, the diversion to Five Corners would be short and she would be on her way. There seemed to be no point in getting to know anyone. Susan's one cup of oatmeal disappeared quickly off of her plate, but was surprisingly filling. The spoonful of soft cheese was tangier than she expected. When Paul's plate was empty, he put on his hat and floated out the door. His eyes were always downcast or looking away. The next morning, Susan woke up hot. The little attic was cold when she zipped up. She couldn't remember the last time she woke up hot. She threw off the top of the sleeping bag, flapped her legs out to cool off. Faint clanking and scraping filtered up through the pine floorboards. Even though dawn was just a glow in the sky, people were already up and busy. Getting dressed in her outdoor gear was difficult. Her arms and hips were stiff. 
The floor was a lot harder than she imagined it would be. She leaned against a rafter to try and stretch her stiff arms. That was when she noticed the little black stovepipe was hot. Oh, that explains the heat, she thought. She recalled seeing a little wood stove in the mudroom below, but it was dusty and had wooden crates stacked on it and around it. She assumed that meant that the stove no longer worked. A mistaken assumption, apparently. Tucker pointed out a stand of old white pines that Susan could harvest for bark, provided she didn't girdle them and kill them. The pines stood on the western side of the road that led back down to Elijah's house. While she carved her football shapes into the tree trunks, she had a good vantage point to survey the family village of Five Corners. If she correctly understood the various sets of introductions, the snow-covered slope to the east of the road was Tucker's hayfield. A long row of round bales lay beneath arches of snow. Beyond the hayfield, the roof of Rupert's sawmill could be seen above the trees. Elijah's farm fields stretched to the left of the house and the barn. Nathan's little red house sat beside another of the five roads. It led up the hillside to the right. Nathan had several small fields and a barn in matching red. Below the pines sat Elijah's sister Hannah's house. Susan hadn't met Hannah. Her roosters were introducing themselves through the trees. Susan had a half a dozen bark footballs under her arm. She stopped to stretch and twist her back. The stiffness from sleeping on the hard floor wasn't working itself out as quickly as she would have liked. She chose her steps with care as she made her way up the slippery, snow-packed road. Paul glanced over at her as she hobbled up the road. He quickly looked away and carried two heavy buckets into a newer barn that sat nearer the road. Do you have any garlic salt or, or lemon pepper? Susan laid her bark footballs on the kitchen counter in order to take off her hat and gloves. I thought you were joking about eating tree bark. Sandy stared at the bark with her nose wrinkled. Oh, nope, serious. I brought enough for everyone for supper. I wanted to repay your kindness for the little room. It was nice to not sleep in the snow for a change, but, boy, it sure got warm up there when you got that little stove going. What little? Uh, oh, you mean in the middle house? Oh, we don't use that stove. Well, someone did. It was nice. Haven't woke up warm in, well, seems like forever. Anyhow, pine fries can be a little bland. Maybe you have some vinegar? Otherwise, just plain salt is good. Sandy produced a clove of garlic and crushed some rock salt in a bowl. Susan showed Sandy how to peel away the soft, white inner bark and cut it across the grain into short linguine-like strips. They fried them in beef tallow, stirring constantly, so all of the thin strips turned shades of light brown. Is, is your brother Paul, uh, is he okay? Susan asked. There didn't seem to be an easy way to ask if he was mildly retarded or deaf or something awkward. Uh, he's, he's really quiet. Oh, he's okay. He's just been down ever since Tina died. Though, come to think of it, he was kind of down before that. Yeah, Paul and Tina were high school sweethearts, you see. They were going to get married after he got back from Bosnia. Except she'd gotten pretty sick by that time. Doctors didn't know what it was. 
They said ALS, and then it wasn't that, but a bunch of other things. Then it wasn't those things either. (laughs) They really didn't know. Paul and Tina told each other they would be getting married when she got better. Honeymoon in Niagara. Ten years of therapy. Getting a little better. Getting worse, but never good. Then she got the cancer. Oh, this was more of a can of worms than Susan wanted. As a short-term guest, she didn't want deep histories. She stirred the pine fries around in the big iron skillet as a distraction. Yeah, Tina lingered a couple of years, but she died a few years back. He'd always been a quiet guy, but he got even quieter during all his tending to Tina. Tending his cows has been good for him. Still, sometimes he's gone all day. The pine fries spawned conversation and smiles around the dinner table. Crunchy food was a rare thing. Tucker wondered how Susan came to be in Brattleboro. Sandy had told him Heather's story. Susan gave a brief and heavily edited tale of being from New Hampshire but stranded in Massachusetts and trying to get home. Tucker shared his recent encounters with the new federal checkpoints and new restricted zones. He sounded like he was trying not to sound discouraging about Susan's revised plan to try the Route 9 bridges. His pessimism came through, though, nonetheless. Route 9 was a major east-west route. That earned extra federal attention. Susan noticed that no one asked Paul anything. Neither did he look up as if following any of the conversations. He ate in silence. He did take seconds at the pine fries. Susan presumed that meant that he liked them. As darkness fell in her little attic room, Susan's eyes got tired of looking at her map. Tucker mentioned another bridge up in Walpole, but her map didn't go that far north. She could try to find another map or simply follow the river until she reached it. Perhaps a bridge farther north would be less zealously guarded. She wondered if she was too focused on bridges. What if she made a raft or found a canoe and crossed in some unwatched stretch of river? The stories of soldiers shooting people in the river sounded like urban legends. At least, she hoped so. She wondered if maybe there was something to that movie curse. Was it the curse that had been ruining all of her attempts to get back into New Hampshire? There did seem to be an invisible wall of fate in her way at every turn. She bundled herself within her sleeping bag and got as comfortable as possible on the bare boards. She tried to think of pleasant memories, but sleep found her before any came to mind. Thanks to those of you who sent in questions for the upcoming Q&A episode on my little online survey. The survey is still active until April 20th, 2023, So, if you had a question about the stories or wanted to pick a character you'd like to hear more about, check out the survey. There's a link for the surveys in the show notes. I also have a link as a post on my Buy Me a Coffee page. Check out the Posts tab. Thanks again for your input.